Hello, and welcome to The Scott Mize Show, a podcast focused on health, diet, bodybuilding, and philosophy. I interview experts, doctors, coaches, and N equals one case studies to answer your questions about improving health, achieving your best physique, and making sustainable progress. We'll cover topics from carnivore and ketogenic diets, to bodybuilding, to life philosophy, and everything in between. Enjoy the show. Are you looking to lose fat, gain muscle, or improve your health, or all of the above? Interested in working with me one-on-one? Stop spinning your wheels, because I offer personalized coaching where I can help you reach your goals, whether it be fat loss, muscle building, improving your health, or all of the above. I provide tailored nutrition, training, and supplementation advice, one or all of them together, with 24-7 ongoing support to help guide you every step of the way. You can email me at scott.mize at gmail.com, click the link in the description of this episode to schedule your free consult call, to go over your goals, answer questions with no obligation. Let's take your physique or health journey to the next level. This episode is brought to you by LMNT Electrolytes. This month, we're switching it up with an exclusive offer that's only for VIP LMNT partners, including Carnivore Cast listeners. You can now receive this free sample pack along with any regular purchase when you use my custom link, which is provided in the show notes or my Instagram link in bio. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash carnivorecast, all one word. And as I said, I'll include the link in the show notes. LMNT electrolytes are convenient evidence-based and delicious and get yours today to help support the show. Thank you. Soon to be Dr. Dr. Zach Robinson is a researcher in exercise science and the founder of data-driven strength. Zach has an MS in exercise science and is a certified strength and conditioning specialist. He is currently a graduate research assistant at Florida Atlantic University's muscle physiology lab. He recently published a preprint exploring the dose relationship relation dose-response relationship with proximity to failure, strength gain, and muscle hypertrophy. Welcome to the show, Zach. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate it, man. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to just start with your background and how you got into exercise science to begin with. Sure. So I, um, classic story, you know, was interested in sports in high school. So I think that's where most exercise science kind of stories kind of start. Um, thought I was going to go down the kind of more traditional either physical therapy or medical school um, kind of path initially, but then I kind of got into strength conditioning late high school um, to trying to, you know, improve sports performance for myself um, kind of in late high school. So I was like, okay, strength conditioning sounds like a viable option as well. Um, went to uh, undergrad at Ohio State University um, with that kind of thinking in mind. Um, through my time at Ohio State, I think I kind of shadowed or had the had the mindset of going through kind of every single one of the typical exercise science paths you could do. Um, so I I shadowed um, kind of a cardiac rehab exercise physiologist position. Didn't really like that. Um, kind of had a talk in one of my classes about everything that's required for physical therapy school and all the logistics associated with that. Wasn't super interested in that. Um, I actually talked to somebody about kind of it was this was later when I was in the program about doing an MD PhD 
And that was going to be a absolute nightmare of working for a couple of years, getting out of school, taking a bunch of extra classes. So I wasn't interested in that. Yeah. And then I had tried research once before and the lab dynamic and everything just wasn't a great fit for me um, initially. So I kind of scratched that off too. So then I was really unsure what I was going to do, honestly. Um, and then one of my friends uh, ended up uh, volunteering in another lab at Ohio State um, that uh, she was just honestly looking for some something to kind of build her resume. And I was like, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll give this a shot as well. And ended up doing that with her, the, the, the mentor of that lab. And just the overall lab dynamic was absolutely awesome. Um, and just a really, really good introduction to research and kind of what that can be in a positive light. Um, and absolutely got me hooked. Honestly, it was a pretty different topic than what I research now. We were predominantly focused on exercise psychology, behavior change, things like that. So some more, I would say, kind of mainstream um, issues that were, are really interesting. And I got yeah. to help out a, a bunch of projects related to exercise and cancer, exercise and um, knee osteoarthritis, those kind of things, um, which is really, really good experience for me um, kind of coming in, came in as, you know, a, I'm obviously a resistant training guy now, but thought I knew a lot more than I really did. And that was a very humbling experience and got a lot of real world um, application with those kind of populations and learned a lot and learned a ton of what I didn't know, which kind of encouraged me to kind of uh, keep on going with graduate school and research and stuff. And I really liked it. Um, did my master's at Florida Atlantic University um, with Dr. Michael Zordos, which I think people that kind of interested in this kind of stuff are familiar with. Yep. He's a really, really good mentor as well. Um, and ultimately ended up staying with my PhD here as well to kind of continue um, some of the work that they were doing there. So that has been the the long, hallowed path to me. <laughs> Most done with this. And uh, yeah, probably aged more than my biological age would show on the inside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. not. Maybe it shows. I don't know. I I almost did a PhD actually, um, in a very different field, but yeah. Um, ultimately organizational behavior. So kind of like the psychology of business, like how to motivate people at work, um, what makes a good manager, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but I, I tried to publish a paper. I did an original study and tried to publish a paper my senior year and just learned how like much of a, slog that was Absolutely. Uh, and then like a couple professors were like yeah for every study i do i like write 12 different papers and submit them to at least 20 different journals each and like oh, all this stuff. And i was like you're gonna get me going on a tangent on this yeah i was like uh, i don't know if this is for me <laughs> yeah hopefully those things are changing there's a lot yeah. of pushes in kind of modern science practices one there was a huge twitter thread that i was reading the other day actually that i was talking about um, something very similar to what you're kind of mentioning here is just like yeah. journal formatting. Um, that is like an insane level yeah. of time and work that people put into that, which is basically yeah. an unnecessary. Um, it's just it's just an unnecessary amount of work that's required to format things for different journals. And that's just, yeah, hopefully yeah. those things are changing as we go along. Okay. But yeah, I, I'm sure the initial introduction to that kind of logistical process was not not a not a fun yeah. thing to get you really hyped up. Yeah, it was cool to publish an original study or to yeah. Yeah, I published an original study, um, but yeah, it was it was interesting. I think I would have loved it actually. I, I sometimes really wish I had done it. Um, so what what do you study, or like what have you concentrated on in your PhD, sure. and how um, did you decide to cover the topic of training effort and proximity to failure? 
Yeah, so I came to FAU um, kind of for my master's in particular, really interested in the topic of proximity to failure. We um, we did uh, a project, which was my master's thesis that I'm still working on getting all written up and all that kind of stuff, which has been a long process. So hopefully that's coming out here relatively soon. Um, that that kind of was the initial part of that process. And then uh, performing that study, designing it, ultimately writing it for the graduation of my master's and, and kind of learning about that research. Um, I I just had a lot of ideas and things we wanted to explore or related to that. So the 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 meta-analysis kind of came out of that process and everyone in the lab kind of talking about that and just how that seems to be a training variable that kind of underlies and interacts with pretty much everything that we think matters. Um, so I think it's a really important variable just kind of um, as far as training prescription goes. So that's how I kind of got interested in, in it. And the meta-analysis was kind of supposed to be the final hoorah um, with that topic um, and, and has just recently obviously come out. So it's it's been a long time since I started working on that initially. Um, and I actually started that before my PhD. But my PhD in, in, in particular is actually looking at the methods and ultimately kind of like the um, yeah, I, I guess the methodology uh, of studying individualization of resistance training. Um, so kind of a pretty hard pivot from, from what I was doing in my master's. Um, I, I think <laughs> you, you've caught me mid data collection and, and after a long day, so I might sound a little bit more pessimistic, um, than normal, <laughs> but I think, you know, this, this project, this topic and my awesome committee that has pushed my understanding of what we can and cannot know about this topic has been, extremely eye-opening and i've i've had a a lot of my personal beliefs broken and learned just a lot of things about what we can and can't say about individualization and really how difficult it is to study um and so that is that's the the big project that i'm doing right now is kind of this this design that's kind of necessary to study that and it's been a um an eye-opening experience just to know how difficult it is to 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 perform a study that's investigating that topic um specifically i'm looking at the uh the individual response to training volume um that is probably the most supported variable if we're going to see it in a training variable that people do indeed respond um in a way that we can pick up on it with appropriate statistical methods um volume is probably the thing we would we would expect so that's the that's the variable that i focus on for for my actual dissertation project. Um, so we're in the middle of that and um, also working on a uh, review paper related to that. That's a little bit more kind of methodology and statistics based um, kind of associated with that. So um, spent a lot of time thinking about that um, and, and just thinking about um, do individuals respond um, actually fundamentally differently to mechanical loading um, or is this related to a bunch of different noise in the system um, that is kind of created in, in kind of our research ecosystem that we generally perform studies in um, is kind of the 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 uh, genesis of my project and what I'm trying to kind of pin down to the best of my ability, which uh, there's a lot more to be done. I'll, I'll, I guess I'll put it at that. <laughs> yeah, that's super interesting. So how do you design a study to test like, is it like testing the efficacy of individualization? So not necessarily. So I guess the, the first part, there's kind of two components to, to what I'm interested in. The first is trying to rigorously test, do individuals actually respond differently to different training protocols, oh, okay. which sounds simple, right? We have a lot of field experience. We yeah. look at some of these, uh, I would call them um, 
studies that create observations. So like there's a couple data sets that people like to point to, including myself before I knew more about this, um, that show a really, really wide variation in response to like a standardized training program. Yeah. There's a few kind of leaps there that would kind of lead somebody to saying people do indeed respond individually to training. Um, Mm. you know, even, even looking at a, you know, a common training design and a lot of training studies where, you know, people have one limb performing one program, one limb performing the other program and seeing that some individuals tend to observe higher change scores in one condition versus the other, whereas other people seem to be the opposite. Um, kind of a basic example of the thing that we're trying to tease out is let's say you ran the exact same training program 10 times in a row, right? Yeah. There's the obvious limitation in the kind of context of resistance training is that you have the time component there that you would kind of expect diminishing returns over time regardless. But nonetheless, performing that exact same training program 10 times in a row, there's kind of going to be a natural amount of variable fluctuation that's going to occur in response to that exact same training stimulus. So when we compare that difference to A versus B, we have to keep that noise in mind. So basically what you have to do with the study design there is you have to but deliberately measure that noise, which comes from the repeated training intervention. So basically we're having people perform one training intervention, wash out period, come back, do it again. You're able to quantify that noise. And then you're able on the individual level to contextualize those between protocol differences to see if it actually exceeds the noise. Got um, it. That's ultimately the study design that's probably required to do it the most robustly. But when you realize the, you know, sample sizes and things that are kind of required to do that, at the most rigorous level, it's uh, it becomes really challenging. And so that's kind of component A and then component B, which um, if we do see kind of meaningful individual variation, even on the participant level, then the next question is from a coaching perspective is, can we predict that? Um, so we took a ton of different, you know, baseline measurements, all kinds of different stuff that coaches could have access to that are relatively ecologically valid to say, if I have this participant come to me on day one, could we take any of these baseline assessments to be able to semi-accurately predict which protocol they would respond favorably to if that response variation does seem to exist? So kind of part A versus part B. That's that's kind of the broad broad interest in my topic, um, cool. which, like I said, has been a, it's been a very eye-opening yeah. kind of journey about what we can and can't say, what I thought I knew. Sure. was not a whole lot at this point. <laughs> so would it be – so this is me just nerding out on this stuff, mm-hmm. but um, – would it be like to test the first thing you have like participants either do 10 sets of bicep curls or 20 sets of bicep curls in, in each arm. Um, and then you see one person, like say you have two participants, Sally and Jane, Sally gets way more growth from 10 sets. Jane gets way more from 20 sets. Then you wash out, then you repeat it. And if they just switch by the same amount or like over many many more data points then you can kind of assume it's just due to noise that they responded differently yeah, so, yeah exactly it's, it, okay. it's that's the concept basically got it is that when we on have on the participant level they each individual is going to have some degree of noise that they exhibit to the same training yeah. stimulus then yeah. you're contextualizing that 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 noise against the between protocol difference on that got participant it. level and so if that difference even though it could be relatively visual on like a plot, right? Like if they yeah. have two data points so the change score from condition A to condition B, you can yeah. see a nice positive trend yeah. um, for condition A versus condition B. If you have no contextualization of that 
that component of noise, which is called within participant variance, then we really have no way of knowing if that actual difference is a true uh, variation ultimately. Yeah. Um, so it sounds it's, it's, very complicated statistically. <laughs> yeah, I've learned I've learned a lot. My committee's been really really good, and I, I I'm ultimately happy that I embarked on this journey because I've learned a ton along the way. But man, it's been yeah, uh, yeah breaking a lot of uh, barriers of things that I thought I knew and, and things I beliefs I I held on starting this process. And so it's been it's been cool. Cool. Um, so going back to the training effort and proximity to failure paper, um, what I'd love to do is start with like, what were some of the main findings and then talk about the methods after, and then maybe sure. after that, we can talk about like ways in which, which it's been quote unquote controversial or misinterpreted. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So I think the, the findings are relatively straightforward in terms of the things that I like to, um, to mention first thing on the front end here, as you already mentioned, is a preprint. I'm currently undergoing the uh, kind of modifications that we've got. Got a ton of good feedback on the paper. Um, for the most part, I think the general concepts are going to remain the same, but there are definitely a few things and finer nuances and things that'll change. Um, so, um, as far as the the overall findings, which I think are kind of the the main concepts that I wish were stressed, um, kind of when this paper got disseminated, um, was that we were looking at the overall directionality of these dose response relationships for the different training adaptations looking for strength which is relatively straightforward when you include load which is the percentage of 1rm on the bar that an individual is using proximity to failure essentially has no impact on strength gains so the load is the driving factor there when you're looking at a predictive factor for strength gains if you think about the principle of specificity we're ultimately trying to mimic that and as you perform more reps in a set and get closer to failure, you're actually losing force production. And that's kind of my, my working model on why things kind of seem to play out that way. The load or the, the absolute um, or the relative percentage of one RM on the bar is going to be the thing that kind of determines that force cap that an individual is producing for that set. And that seems to kind of be the most explanatory factor for strength gains rather than proximity to failure. So if you want a set to be hard for strength, we'd rather that to be because the bar is really heavy rather than because you're accumulating a bunch of fatigue within a set. That's for strength. Now, for hypertrophy, it's basically the exact opposite. Um, there was a, a relationship in which gains in muscle size tended to improve as we got closer to failure. I think the, the major piece of interpretation, I think... Um, I've learned a lot about kind of how to communicate this is I think people definitely read into the actual dose response relationship curve a bit too much. Ultimately, the the fit of these overall models is pretty poor. Like we included um, the way the volume was equated, load, intervention duration, training status, and proximity to failure in these models. And they're still explaining a relatively small amount of the variation in the effects that we observe. So that's important to keep in mind. That said, we still saw positives or uh, uh, slopes that favored closer proximities to failure. So to me, when I look at and interpret these results, that's the takeaway, is that there does seem to be a stimulus as we get closer to failure. The exact way that that curve looks, for a variety of reasons, I don't read into a, a, a ton. We basically had to, you know, like you said, we'll get to the methods, but it's always... I, I have a hard time not mentioning this on the front end is the, the RARs in, in the paper were estimated. We had to, um, in order to perform the analysis that we wanted to perform, we basically had to go through all these studies and estimate those RARs. So even if the RAR estimations are off a little bit, the exact way that curve can bend and jump and all those kind of things 
can ultimately uh, change a decent amount, right? So I think the overall relationship is going to be relatively stable. Like I think um, our methods and everything are going to potentially be off a little bit, but I think they're kind of consistently off. That makes sense. Such that I believe the the overall slope and trend that we saw that changes in muscle size will tend to improve as we get closer to failure is kind of a safe bet. Um, whereas ultimately. Um, the exact curve, the exponential increase towards failure and, and some of the models that um, that we uh, saw seem to fit pretty well are all things that I think can get potentially overinterpreted. So again, just to recap for strength, add a fixed load or percentage of 1RM, RIR really doesn't seem to be predictive of strength gains at all. Um, whereas for hypertrophy, it seems to be a pretty important factor such that um, as you get closer to failure, changes in muscle size seem to improve. Got it. Yeah, thanks. That's really helpful. I think those caveats are super important because people immediately see like data and they're like, okay, this is exactly what it means. This is a fact. Let me like draw lines and chart things based on it. You know, Um, what, so talk about the methods. How did you arrive at aggregating these studies and estimating the RIRs and ultimately getting to um, the regression? Yep. So ultimately, kind of the all the meta analyses on this topic have basically had to compare um, failure versus non-failure, and that's kind of like a, a binary categorical comparison. There's been the most recent meta analysis, which is a really good job that kind of incorporates the different failure definitions, has also been done, which does uh, kind of an additional layer, but ultimately it's still that categorical comparison. Um, the thing we were interested in estimating was the dose-response relationship and kind of understanding this on a more conceptual basis and being able to plot the entire relationship along the RIR continuum. That's kind of our was our goal. And so in order to do that, we basically needed to have RIR as a continuous variable for every single study um, that we thought met our inclusion criteria. And so if you go into those individual studies, I think less than five of them actually report either subjective or objective RIR based on velocity. So um, we had to go through procedures of of estimation to ultimately make these work. Um, so we basically took the best available citations that met the uh, population, the exercise, the loading range, um, the concentric uh, intended velocity, those kind of things to try to match those up the best with each of these individual studies. And then we used a, a, a series of equations and procedures to estimate the maximum possible repetitions an individual could perform with a given load subtract how many they actually did and out pops your estimated RIR. And those are for kind of a bunch of different kind of categories of studies um, that all kind of, um, you know, led to slightly different procedures to estimate the RIR for each one of those different buckets. But ultimately that was kind of the general procedure. Um, And so the thing I always say kind of on the front end is just as like a general premise, like if somebody doesn't accept our um, way that we went about you know, estimating the RER, they could take issue with the overall findings, which is a totally reasonable critique. Personally, obviously, I try to set things up in the most sensible way that I, I, I thought I could. And I think they do a relatively good job of approximating just when I read the study, how close to failure do I think these individuals probably were on average. But of course, we don't really know. We just don't have that data. Um, so it's quite literally the best analysis that we could do. But, you know, in 20 years, when we have a bunch of studies that are appropriately reporting RER, taking that into consideration and actually have a bunch of robust data where that reporting is sufficient and we're not estimating anything, then the, these analysis could look substantially different. Um, so that's just an important thing to keep in mind when talking about those estimations and things like that. That's just kind of the initial premise you kind of need to even get off the ground before we go through the rest of the um, limitations and methods and everything. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, one thing I found interesting is that you you pulled in other studies, like the studies with cluster sets. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? For sure. Yeah. So I think uh, if I recall off the top of my head, the kind of the couple buckets of studies that we included, obviously we included the failure, non-failure studies that are kind of designed for that research question. Um, we included the velocity loss research. So just to conceptualize what that is, throughout a set, as you get closer to failure, the bar speed is actually going to slow down. Um, and so you can use that as an approximation for the proximity to failure. There's been some published equations that can kind of um, use the load um, that they used and the velocity loss achieved to kind of roughly approximate RIR. So we included those. Um, we included uh, studies that obviously directly reported RIR, and there's a few of those. And then we also included, as you mentioned, um, the research that uses alternative set structures, which those kind of fall into two different categories, cluster sets or rest redistribution, both of which are ultimately using rest intervals to manipulate the proximity to the failure of a given number of repetitions um, or, or so. So one group performs three sets of 10. The other group may perform six sets of five, or they may perform two reps with many rest intervals in between every single one of those two reps, still getting the same total of 30 reps. Um, those obviously can be looked at as kind of a separate category of studies. But to me, when we're kind of trying to perform this overall analysis in studies that directly or indirectly manipulate proximity to failure, I think that kind of adds some um, more firepower to this analysis where we may see um, kind of additional effects kind of pop up. So I think that's a another good area of research that we uh, try to incorporate this just to try to get as many effects as possible because we're already, you know, working with a pretty small amount of studies, particularly for hypertrophy. Yeah. Do you think one thing I was thinking when I when I've heard you explain this in the past is that cluster training inherently is going to have shorter rest times. So even if you were doing like with your 5RM or that's a bad example for hypertrophy, but with your 10RM, you're doing like sets of six with 20 seconds rest, 30 seconds rest, whatever. Inherently, those sets are going to quote unquote perform worse on hypertrophy because they're shorter in rest mm. based on the research we have on shorter versus longer rest times. So would that kind of inherently make um, training short of fa failure look less effective if you included mm -hmm. cluster sets that way? It's an interesting, interesting question. I guess to me, Generally, the the rest interval research, to my knowledge, those sets are taken to failure most of the, most of the time. Yeah. So the thing to that would potentially be of of worry there would be okay if I'm taking three sets to failure and I'm taking one minute versus three minute rest between those sets, my performance is probably going to decline way more in the one minute condition versus the three minute condition. Right. Whereas with cluster sets and rest redistribution. Ultimately, what you're doing is you're making a given amount of work easier, not harder. Um, mm -hmm. So if anything, I get from the performance aspect, at least, I think it would be able to maintain performance better. Yeah, yeah. Data that would show that although if proximity to failure is important, those additional rest intervals are basically delaying the inevitable that you would want yeah. to achieve, basically. Um, yeah. So that's that's why that's the theory of us including it um, was that you're basically manipulating proximity to failure in that case by the introduction or uh, removal of mm. a rest interval rather than either the repetitions or the load, which is yeah. what you're doing in the other cases. Um, yeah. So I guess it would yeah. depend on how the cluster training study equated for volume. Yep. 
Um, exactly. That that would make a big difference too, theoretically. Yep. Interesting. Um, and and you mentioned the velocity loss research, and you mentioned earlier um, working with Dr. Zordos. Um, I heard you too on a podcast talking about this paper. So obviously he's, he seems incredibly supportive and uh, very intellectually intellectually honest. Um, but I'm curious if his work and writings in mass about how, based on some of velocity loss data, he was developing this kind of um, hypothesis that you can train much further from failure and still get really good hypertrophy, if not equal. Did that influence you at all when you were thinking about this? Or like, how did that yeah. work? I think I think we had a relatively similar read on the research for the most part. The, th- the two things that I think I'm going to speak for Dr. Zordos here. Obviously, I could be wrong. We've had many conversations about this. I don't think I am wrong, but um, I'm going to think, I think he makes two kind of assumptions when he's talking on this topic for the most part. Um, So in his mind, he's fighting against the claim that you must train to failure to optimize hypertrophy in every single parameter situation outcome, which I don't think is accurate. Specifically, in his mind, what I think when generally speaking, when he's talking about this topic, he's thinking multi-joint exercises, relatively heavy loads, both of which the preprint analysis kind of demonstrated that RER doesn't seem to matter nearly as much. Um, so in those conditions, I think he's kind of he, he's pretty spot on. So the the couple studies that have tended to show that you can train you know substantially farther than failure and still kind of um, do all right in the hypertrophy department have been kind of on the moderate to heavier load end of things. And I do think that tends to matter when we kind of aggregate all these studies together. That's where we can start kind of picking up on some of those additional trends. Um, and specifically when we kind of think about the, the motor unit relationship or the at least the assumed mechanism of kind of how this stuff works, you basically have to make a set hard. And if it's already really hard when you start the set, are sufficiently challenging like one rep at 85 percent of your one rm is already like five rer right um so when we're using those kind of loads upwards of like a 10 8 rm i think that's where rer seems to be uh come less of an issue um in terms of hypertrophy outcomes um i still think it probably you know if we were to have a you know, a super big study that's never going to get done. I think it probably still favors conditions training closer to failure a little bit based on just the data that we have. But I don't think it's nearly as a clear cut scenario than maybe some of the the lighter loads um, purely based on our analysis. Now, obviously, again, all the caveats, limitations um, that we've already mentioned in mind, uh, a new study that actually looks at this question appropriately quantifies RAR directly, et cetera, could, you know, look at a high and low load group and and disprove that. So that's where um, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but that would be kind of my implicit premise in kind of thinking and explaining his kind of observations on this topic is that I think, again, I think he's fighting against the, the statement that you need to train to failure in every single scenario to optimize hypertrophy, where I also don't think that's actually true. Um, I just think that the on a per set basis, the stimulus is probably maximized very close to failure, if not all the way. But that doesn't mean you can't create a scenario where the differences become relatively negligible. And I think with you're using heavy loads, maximal intended velocity, um, you know, equating the repetition volume that you would achieve otherwise, 
you know, I think those are some things you can do in your favor to equalize the conditions out than compared to a condition training much closer to failure. And um, can you talk a little bit about what, why you think this paper has been um, controversial in the industry and what are, you've already mentioned some of them, but some of the big ways that it's been misinterpreted. For sure. Yeah. I think ultimately the, the biggest thing is just directly, excuse me, um, directly interpreting kind of the differences in RAR and the exact difference in effect size and things like that. I think obviously that there's a, there's a part of the analysis that obviously suggests that to some degree, but the, the actual, um, the goal of the analysis was just to demonstrate the directionality of these adaptations. Um, honestly, the, the main thing I was interested in starting this was strength. Um, just because I had done a reading of the, that research. And I think the, the story for strength was just a little bit different than something that I kind of had in my brain of what I ultimately thought was what we were going to find, which was pretty similar to what, what we ultimately found. Um, and if anything on hypertrophy, I was more on the end of, you know, you're probably going to see similar outcomes, you know, two, three reps from failure than versus failure. But there's some nuances in, into the statistical approach that ultimately leads to an outcome that's potentially slightly counterintuitive um, to people. But ultimately, I think that the if, if you, what you take away from this analysis is the overall directionality of relationships for, for, R, for strength, RER doesn't seem to matter a whole lot once the load is fixed. And for hypertrophy, it seems to matter, you know, a, a decent amount. Um, obviously, like I said, we're not explaining all of resistance training outcomes purely based on RAR, but uh, the, the slope seemed to be relatively meaningful. It seems to be an important factor to strongly consider when you're designing a hypertrophy program, thus making that decision and counting for all the different variables that go into writing a training program, making sure proximity to failure is scaled appropriately with that, I think is something that's important. Um, does this, let's go through the couple things of interpretation that I think are not correct. Does this mean you should take every set to failure? Absolutely not. I think there's a lot of ways that even if, even if you just view it from a conceptual basis of uh, if we have a degree of an effect size that we're trying to combine sets to get to, not every single one of them has to be, um, you know, to failure, obviously. Um, are there scenarios where training to failure is just logistically a better idea than others? Absolutely. If you're training bench press by yourself, probably not a great idea. <laughs> um, you know, things like that, that I think that are very easy to make sound bites and say that you should, you know, take this and absolutely run with it. And all the other meta analyses on this topic were wrong. Personally, I think if you kind of go back and look at all the ones that have been done to this point, pretty much all the effect sizes kind of lean in favor of the closer to failure condition. It just wasn't. <clears throat> It just wasn't consistent enough to reach a you know statistical significance threshold, but we're dealing with a small number of studies with low number of participants. That's basically kind of the status quo in our field. And that effect size still isn't relatively large, but they all do kind of lean in that direction. So I think um, I wasn't particularly like shocked by it by any means. Like to me, once again, I guess I'm reading it from the perspective of what I'm supposed to take away from this in that on average, the directionality is that hypertrophy seems to improve uh, as we take sets closer to failure. And that's pretty much where I stop. Uh, I don't tend to like interpret things super finely, like comparing RERs and things like that, just because I think we're a long ways away from being able to do that finally. And like we already talked about, due to the fact these are all estimated RERs, things like that, you just got to be really cautious of what we're doing. I think ultimately the data set and the analysis is good enough 
to give us that overall directionality of the adaptation, but I wouldn't overinterpret things from there. If anything, from like a qualitative perspective, I think there's a shift in my opinion a little bit just to kind of sit my general RAR range of that program for hypertrophy a little bit closer to failure, feature more sets to failure on average, things like that. But I don't think this has completely changed the game. Do I always program sets to failure now at this point? Absolutely not. Um, and I think the, you know, coming back to kind of what I'm really interested in in terms of individualization, this has me thinking a lot about ultimately what are the factors that lead to observations on the individual level from people in the trenches of, I'm really pro failure. I'm really in the RAR camp. And I always try to take the mindset that both those people are probably right and they're probably doing what's mm. best for them over time. But yep. to me, the thing that's interesting is <clears throat> what is the actual thing that's leading to one of those two approaches being better for an individual, if that's actually the case? Um, you know, one thing I, I kind of keep in mind is kind of like a rough potential explanation is that if somebody was to perform a given amount of volume, performing all their sets to failure, um, but then they perform a similar load scheme, all those kind of things with more of an RIR approach. If their performance is drastically like the volume load they accumulate over a session is drastically higher in the RIR condition, maybe training the failure on that exercise and that condition for that individual isn't a great idea. Interesting. Um, yeah. I think, I think another thing I like to think about with this too, is that I think people tend to view the proximity to failure thing kind of on a, not um not granular enough like the way that i view it is like for the most part i think when people have this conversation they have hack squats for moderate to high reps in mind <laughs> for some reason yeah but for me at least i can take you know my back work <clears throat> i'm just getting over an illness so i apologize for the list oh no problem I'm really trying You're to fine. Uh, hold it together here and not be annoying but um for my uh for my back training, I can take a set to failure or even, you know, to the to the point where I can't even perform a length and partial after that. Yeah. And I can repeat very close to my rep targets after like a two, three minute rest. Yeah. Like a machine bro or something. Yeah. 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 No so I deal. think that's an example where the cost of failure being the the kind of the fatigue that's coming from a set like that doesn't seem to be there. So mm-hmm. for me, the kind of the trade-off, or I mean the 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 consideration of why you may not want to go to failure from everything we kind of understand um, and and believe on this topic doesn't really seem to be there. Whereas, you know, for somebody's lower body training, or maybe there's just substantially different than me, maybe my back's just really small and I can't generate fatigue, something (laughs) like that. And they see a meaningful drop in performance after a set to failure. Maybe that's an example where an RIR approach makes a lot more sense. So Mm. it's just, that's that's kind of what I'm interested in now at this point is like what is that underlying factor that's ultimately going to predict which of these two approaches is going to be better for an individual if that's the case. But on average, if we're kind of just painting this general kind of textbook relationship of what does proximity to failure mean for hypertrophy, it seems to be relatively uh, meaningfully related such that you know hypertrophy improves as we get closer to failure. But that's basically yeah. where I stop. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, one of the last things you mentioned, like thinking about um, rep drop off as a measure of like how fatiguing something is, it'd be really interesting. I know this is probably impossible um, in a research setting, but to see how well using rep drop off to like determine someone's volume and mm-hmm. training intensity 
would be in how effective that would be. Like if you said like, oh, this person, when they train to failure on legs, their reps drop off way too much. So they can do RAR training for legs versus other body parts it doesn't. And this person, um, you know, when they... when they add sets, the the rep drop off is so dramatic. So don't add yep. more sets for them, and vice versa. It'd be really interesting to see like how effective that is as like a model for yep. um, hypertrophy. I hope I hope it matters. That's one of the things I'll yeah. be looking at with my dissertation. Yeah, um, for oh, the volume cool. particularly, but um, I hope it matters at least. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, one thing uh, I I was listening to you on uh, the Revive Stronger podcast. And one point that Dr. Mike was making, and I think a lot of other people have made about the paper, is that the relationship, um, the dose-response relationship with proximity to failure and hypertrophy seems to become less significant when you look at advanced trainees, higher frequencies, higher volumes, males. Um, And I'm asking you to speculate here. Do you think this is mostly a problem of statistical power and the overall relationship probably still holds? Or do you think that training effort doesn't have that relationship with hypertrophy in those populations or those um, circumstances? Um, it's tough. I mean, I think the 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 uncertainty intervals and all those estimates are extremely wide. They're already yeah. extremely wide for the main models. Yeah. So speculating too much on that yeah. is... Oh man, I'm so sorry. My dog's going nuts. <laughs> uh, um, fine. Is is uh is probably not wise. Yeah. That said, I would assume that the relationship again on a per set basis kind of exists throughout. Yeah. But I think there are absolutely more than one ways to kind of reach an absolute amount of stimulus, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. Um so that 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 is my current working hypothesis, and that yeah, you know, again on a per set basis probably training to failure is probably going to maximize the stimulus. Yeah. Um, but if you are looking to compensate with more volume, looking to compensate with more frequency, potentially, um, maybe you're an individual who performance drops off a ton. Are trained individuals able to get more from uh, lower RIRs due to more neuromuscular efficiency, things like this. Yeah. I, I, I think those are all reasonable, reasonable hypotheses. I just, we just have to get more direct evidence on yeah. this, particularly with good RER reporting that yeah. performs all the adequate methods um, for me to make a strong stance on that. Um, yeah. But I think they're all reasonable. And I think, yeah. again, I think purely from a practical perspective, the way that I view it is that I don't think that training to failure is necessary to optimize hypertrophy. It just on a per set basis may be an efficient way to do so, but a little bit better. But if that limits for an individual how many sets you can tolerate, there may be a kind of problem of optimization there yeah. that doesn't allow us to tolerate yeah. the total you know number of sets that are just going to optimize hypertrophy for an yeah. individual such that that little decline in per set RER on average may, may make sense for that person. Yeah. Um, now that we got studies suggesting there potentially are positive outcomes up to 52 sets a week. I don't know if you <laughs> saw that recent yeah. letter on that paper. <laughs> Man, who knows? Um, yeah. yeah, 52 sets to, to failure sounds pretty brutal. So yeah, um, so yeah, I, I I think that's that's ultimately the way that I view it is that per set basis, understanding this relationship is important because it allows you to create that optimization game around these other variables, um, volume included, and all the kind of things that you mentioned. Um, but okay. particularly from the paper, man, those intervals are pretty wide. So I I, I tend yeah. to not have a ton of um, yeah 
super a ton of stock in there. More than interesting, yeah. something to keep in mind and kind of yeah. maybe potentially rely on field level experience in there where we don't have mm-hmm. like an exact examination of that question in particular. Yeah. And those intervals are wide just due to the nature of there being little data. Yeah. Just so it's, it's to some of them, the observations are, are, are lower. Some of them, the variable, uh, like the, the actual data variability is just extremely high. Like for example, the load one's a bad example, but that's the one I'm going to use. Um, if there's not a very clear relationship there, the, the variability in the intervals increases, um, so that, that you're just kind of dealing with all those things. Basically, there wasn't any super clear patterns there to kind of make anything out, um, whether that's due to a decrease in number of data points or the spread of those data points, both are going to contribute to kind of the increased uh, size of the intervals of those estimates that, you know, we're kind of working with and and, and working on. So, um, so yeah, more, more work to do ultimately. Yep. Yep. Really interesting. Um, well, thanks so much for your time today, Zach. This has been awesome to chat with you. Um, really appreciate you you taking the time with me after a long day of data collection. <laughs> no, no worries, man. I appreciate you got me to talk about uh talk about the uh, individual station stuff a little bit, which I don't yeah. get to talk about a ton. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting, and I'm definitely looking forward to more of your findings there as they come out. Um, where can folks find you and and follow along with you? Yeah, man, you can find most of my stuff on Instagram, just Zach.DataDrivenStrength. Um, you can find all of our stuff there. And then also Data Driven Strength on YouTube. We've been posting some videos as of late. Um, and I'm going to get flamed in the comments. My voice is <laughs> no, you're good. terrible. Um, but yeah, man, thanks. This was a great chat. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, and Likewise. yeah, you can find my stuff there. Thank you, Zach. Thank you for listening to the show. You can find The Scott My Show on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Please leave a comment like, review, or share the podcast with your friends or followers. It helps more people find the show.